If you are just joining us, over the past several weeks, we've begun a study of the Sermon on the Mount, which is perhaps the most famous teaching of Jesus. If you ever heard, judge not, least you be judged, or turn the other cheek, or do unto others as you would have done unto you, you've brushed shoulders with the Sermon on the Mount. You've come up against the teaching of Jesus. But this sermon is more than memeable one-liners. This is Jesus' vision and answer to the question, how do we flourish? How do we find the path to the good life so that we can be truly human and really alive and flourish? The Sermon on the Mount is the answer. Now, we're only just at the beginning of the sermon. We're only six verses into three chapters. We're at the opening that we now call the Beatitudes, this collection of blessed <laughs> statements. And today we're looking at the fourth Beatitude. And this beatitude talks about appetite. It talks about hunger. And it's an important beatitude because we live in a world of uh, misdirected hungers. We can see that with physical hunger. Sometimes uh, when our appetite is out of control uh, in two extremes, it can lead to an eating disorder or it can lead to obesity. This is what it looks like when our appetites are out of control. But there's a deeper appetite that this passage calls into question as well. And it's this desire, this desire that drives us in life to consume. Sometimes they, these misdirected appetites lead to plenty for some and want for many others. You see, we have this disorder in our appetites that Christ is going to address because he's inviting us to a better appetite. He wants us to become the blessed hungry. That's what this beatitude is about, becoming the blessed hungry. And so we'll look at this in three ways this morning. The first uh, question we'll need to ask is, what is blessed hunger? And then we're going to see, why is that blessed? Why is this hunger blessed? And finally, how do we become the blessed hungry? So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew's gospel looking just at one verse. It'll be at the screen uh, behind me as well. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, we read this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So our first point, what is blessed hunger? When was the last time you were hungry? Really hungry. I'm not just talking like blood sugar is a little low and you're hangry. I'm talking like when was the last time you felt legitimate hunger in your stomach and in your body. And I don't like to admit it, but I rarely feel hunger. And this season of Lent uh, has reminded me of this. There's, there's been a few days where I fasted and I felt this basic human experience again, a deep hunger within my body, not just a small rumbling, but that true hunger. And it caused me to lament it caused me to lament because with you, I live in this culture where it's so easy to be disconnected from this basic human experience because we live lives that are full. If I have a rumbling in my stomach, I can just go down to my pantry and get a snack. If I want a meal, I can just open my fridge. If there's no food, I can open an app and food is brought to me. If I'm thirsty, I just turn on my tap. I don't have to worry if the water's clean. And so because of these privileges that we all share, I rarely feel hungry or thirsty. 
I might get a little famished, a little parched, but not that deep hunger that so many in the world experience in this moment right now. And I suspect, if we're honest, most of here in this room rarely feel that kind of hunger, coupled with the fear of wondering, will there be a meal? The very real uh, existential threat that if this hunger is not met, I will starve. So few of us know that experience. So how does a beatitude like this speak to a culture like ours? A culture that is full, a culture that is disconnected from hunger and thirst, like the hunger and thirst around the globe, or the hunger and thirst that was very common in the day of Jesus. Because when Jesus spoke these words, he wasn't speaking about some abstraction, some abstract hunger and thirst. You know, the, the, the average worker in ancient Palestine, they ate meat once a week. And every day, they were on the brink of very real hunger. And they knew what it was to go without food for time on end. And they knew what it was to face famine. And they knew what it was like to live under the shadow of very real starvation. They knew the difficulty of finding clean, drinkable water. This was their experience. So what does a beatitude like this mean for us who rarely thirst, who rarely hunger, who don't know this fearful risk of starvation? You might know Abraham Maslow, any psychology majors here? Abraham Maslow, no one in the service, all right. Um, Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's a pyramid and you start at the bottom. Maslow pro proposed that you, only when your basic and foundational needs are met, so food and drink and shelter, only once that's met, then you can start to worry about security and safety. And once you have those things, then you can start to worry about belonging and love and self-esteem. And once all of that is built, then you can self-actualize. Then you can start living for high, higher ideals and desires. So essentially what he is saying is you need to have food and drink in your belly. You need to have a roof over your head so that you can do the work of actually living and becoming more fully human. You can only begin to hunger and thirst for other things once your physical hunger and thirst is satisfied. You can begin to hunger and thirst for relationship or position and experience. You can start to hunger and thirst for meaning and purpose and happiness. You can hunger and thirst for higher ideals like relieving other people's suffering, changing cultures, transforming lives, and eradicating the suffering of others. Like These are the things you can start to hunger and thirst for so long as your basic hunger and thirsts or met. That's Maslow's pyramid. So what are you hungry for in your life? Because all of you, to the best of my knowledge, have these basic needs met. You're living at the top tier of this pyramid. What are you hungry for? What pursuit eats up your time and energy? What are you chasing after? What are you longing for? But more so, I want you to identify something that you've longed for desperately in your life, that maybe you've sought after, but you've yet to receive it. Something that you desire earnestly, but it hasn't come. Because even in our hunger and thirst that aren't for food and water, we can know the pain of that hunger and thirst going unmet. I mean, I've seen it time and time again in pastoral meetings. Some of you who desperately long for a spouse or for healing in your body, or for reconciliation in your family, and you're hungry for this, and it hasn't come. You know, you might be 
dreaming for something. You might be anticipating something good in your life, but it's failing to come to fruition. You might be desiring more meaningful work and the opportunities, they just don't come. And so you have this intense, growing hunger, this good desire even, but it goes unsatisfied. And so all you're left with is the hunger, the desire that's not being met. And so you might not have a grumbling stomach, but you have a growl in your soul because you have desires that are unmet. And so although we live in a culture that is full, although we don't experience hunger and thirst in the same way as the time of Jesus and many around the world, we still experience hunger and thirst. And whatever form it may take, Jesus wants us to connect with this basic experience because he says that appetite in you, that hunger, whether it's for food or the drive for purpose, it's a clue. Your appetite is a clue. It's a clue to something greater, that there is a blessed hunger. There's a blessed thirst. And this hunger in you, this drive, it shows you you're created for more than a full belly. You're created for more than fulfilled desires. These appetites can pull you toward the God who's able to complete your life. And so our hunger and thirst, it can be blessed, but not when we've eaten. That's not what this is talking about. It's not a hunger and thirst for food and drink that's blessed. It's not our experiences or personal fulfillment or wealth or goals or happiness being attained that is blessed. It's not even a hunger for blessedness that Jesus has in mind. He says, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's what's blessed. Congratulations are in order to you when you're hungry and thirsting after the right thing, the one thing that matters, righteousness. And Jesus then actually reverses Maslow's pyramid. He turns it upside down. Later in the sermon, Jesus says, why are you worried? Why are you worrying about food and drink and being blinged out like Solomon? Like, why are you worried about food and drink and clothing? Instead, he presents the hierarchy of the kingdom. He says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. He turns Maslow upside down. He says, you don't need food and drink and shelter. What you fundamentally need is to seek the kingdom of God, seek his righteousness, and these things will be provided. He's not saying name it and claim it. He's not saying health, wealth, and prosperity. He's just saying there is a fundamental need beyond this, deeper than this. I saw a meme this week where they took the pyramid of Maslow and they added under food Wi-Fi, right? Like that, that's true in our culture, but, but Christ said there's something deeper that you need. You need the kingdom of God. You need his righteousness. I get that you need food and water. He's speaking to a culture that knows the very risk of starvation. It's way more radical than you think. But he says there's a deeper need that should you not have this need met, you're, you're missing it. So be hungry for the right thing. And when you are, your life is blessed. You're living the good life. You're living a life worthy of congratulations. For a moment, let's just imagine righteousness as a loaf of, of bread, because why not? And imagine it's like a delicious sourdough loaf of bread uh, from, I don't know, uh, where do we get our communion? Matchstick. You know, and it's this amazing loaf of bread on the table. When you look closely at the language Jesus is using, He's not saying, oh, you're just hungering for a little bit of righteousness. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, oh, you just want a slice of bread. You want a slice of this loaf of righteousness. He's not even saying that you, you want a, a portion of it. He's saying you want the whole loaf. 
Blessed are you when your hunger is so deep that you know it can't be satisfied with just a small bite, but you actually want to consume the whole loaf. You have a hunger so deep for righteousness that you want complete righteousness, total righteousness, and not just part of righteousness. You see, what Jesus is saying to us, uh, especially those of us here, is that if you just want to tack on a little bit of spirituality to your life, if you want a little bit of religion, if you just want to be a good person, uh, but so long as faith doesn't inconvenience your life, then that's not what he's talking about. That's not the blessed hunger. If you want a faith that doesn't inconvenience your life, I hate to break it to you, you've chosen the wrong religion. You're in the wrong church. We're glad you're here. You're welcome to be here. We want a journey with you, but faith makes a mess of our lives. Because it is to surrender lordship. It's to say Jesus is Lord. And I'm hungry after the things he offers. And I want them entirely, not in part, but in full. So what is righteousness? Because that's a stiff word, isn't it? It's a very churchy word, righteousness. What is it? The Greek word is dikeosune. You want to have some fun and try to say that? Dikeosune. Yeah, right, like dikeosune, that's the Greek word. And Eugene Peterson calls this word an ecological word in the scriptures. Because no matter where you are in the scriptures, no matter what you might be reading, it always connects back to righteousness, to dikeosune. And it's used in a few ways. Dikeosune can refer to the righteousness of God. And when it does, it's often translated not just as righteousness, but as salvation or deliverance. So it talks about God's mighty acts to save. So God's dikeosune could be him delivering Egypt, uh, Israel out of Egypt, freeing them from slavery, bringing them into the promised land. That's the mighty act of God. It can refer to God restoring his people out of exile in Babylon and bringing them home, God's dikeosune. And of course, it's most on display when God sends his beloved son into the world to bring redemption and healing. This is the mighty works of God, his righteousness, dikeosune. Dikeosune is also translated justification. And this is one of the most crucial, if not the most important doctrine in the Christian faith. It refers to how God sets us right with himself. That there is nothing you can do to earn salvation. There's nothing you can do to merit enough favor from God that we are so helpless and lost that God has to take the initiative, and he has. So through Christ's death and resurrection, you can be saved through faith. This is a grace, we call. You are saved by grace through faith. That's how the kingdom of God works. And so dikeosune can sometimes refer to this, justification. And as much as I would like to make this whole sermon about it, that's not what it's about here in Matthew. That's not Matthew's usage. Dikeosune has one other primary use. And it can, it's about living our lives rightly. It's about holiness. It's about doing what is right and good. And more often than not, in Matthew's gospel, when he uses this word righteousness, it's not to refer to the mighty acts of God. It's not to refer to how we're justified. Although these are important things, more often than not, it's about us. It's about how we're living our lives. Are we seeking to live our lives in light of the kingdom, in light of who God is, in what light of the ways Jesus holds before us? So dikeosune, righteousness, is doing the will of God, doing what is right, seeking to be holy because the Lord your God is holy. But Jesus even goes further in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, it's not enough just to be righteous like your culture 
Now, the Pharisees, they had kind of a superficiality around righteousness, even though they were very serious about their religion. And so does our culture. Our culture loves to say we're good people. We're concerned about being good people. But Jesus says there's a better kind of goodness. There's a greater goodness, a greater righteousness, where you don't put on a face. You don't put on a show. You don't pretend to be better than you are, and yet you still seek to do what is right. There's a kind of righteousness that doesn't pretend, that doesn't put on the airs of religion just to look religious, but actually has an inner transformation. This is the greater righteousness that we're going to encounter in the Sermon on the Mount again and again. And so he's saying, blessed are you when you hunger for this. Yes, you might hunger for God to act mightily in the world, and that's good. You might hunger after justification, and that's, that's good if you want to be reconciled to God. But what Jesus is calling blessed is neither of that. He's saying, blessed are you when you hunger to live in alignment with the kingdom of God. When you hunger for your life to look more like Jesus because you know who he is and you find his life desirable and you don't just want to have part of that in your life, but you want all of it in your life. You want to be completely righteous, totally righteous. That's when you're blessed. One scholar puts it like this. Righteousness is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. I'll say it again. Righteousness is whole person behavior, whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. Blessed are you when that's the case. Blessed are you when you're so hungry for the ways of Jesus that you won't be satisfied with just a little bit of transformation in your soul. You want complete transformation. You want to look more like Jesus every single day until he returns and the kingdom of heaven is established on earth. Blessed is that hunger. Flourishing is that hunger. You found the path to the good life. And this is why the psalmist puts it like this. As a deer pants for flowing streams in Psalm 42. So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That's blessed hunger. A desiring, a panting after the God of the universe and a desire not just to know this God, but to become like this God, to walk in his ways. If you have that hunger, congratulations are in order. That's what this beatitude says. So that's blessed hunger. But why is it blessed? Why is this hunger blessed? Let's read the Beatitude once more. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Or as other translations put it, they will be filled. So this Beatitude has declared something. It's declared that if you hunger after righteousness, you're blessed. But why? Because of the promise. You will be satisfied. That's what makes that hunger blessed. You will be satisfied. You won't go hungry. You won't starve. You won't be held out from God. He's going to meet you in that hunger. But the word here for satisfied is actually much more than just satisfied. It's the word in Greek used for fattening animals, for fattening them up. Uh, and perhaps the equivalent is actually being stuffed. Hear, hear me on that. God is saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they're going to be stuffed. So you should be thinking like thanksgiving full. You should be thinking like loosening up the belt 
full. Like that is the sort of fullness being described here. So you might have desires that go unmet in your life. You might be thirsting and hungering after a career or a status or a certain experience, whatever it may be. That's not what God is saying he's going to fill you up with. But when you have that blessed hunger for righteousness, for his kingdom, he's going to fill that. God's going to fatten you up. That's the promise. And how good, how good is it when you're satisfied? Think about when your friend or your spouse or uh, a loved one goes away on a long trip and that hunger to be united again, to be in their presence, it just grows and FaceTime just makes it worse because you just, you just want to be in their presence. And it grows and it grows and it grows and they finally arrive at home and you get to throw your arms around it. How good is that moment? Satisfaction. Hunger, 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 satisfaction. Some of you, maybe you're planning a big event or a trip or a wedding and you, the hunger grows. You're getting all the details right. You're longing for this day and the day arrives and it's good and satisfaction. Hunger, 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 satisfaction. In the same way, the kingdom of God works like this. God wants to see this growing hunger in his people, this hunger for righteousness, this hunger for the kingdom of heaven and it grows and it grows and it grows and he satisfies it. When I was a kid, I loved me some Ghostbusters. And I don't know how you feel about the, the remake. The first service was pretty harsh. Anybody like the remake of Ghostbusters? Three people. Good job, Warner Brothers. Uh, you know, but when Ghostbusters 2 came out, I was stoked. I was eight years old at the time. I loved me some Ghostbusters. I got to see it in the theaters. And I was so excited because I finally had a vision of life I wanted to attain. I want to be a Ghostbuster. Blessed are the Ghostbusters, you know? And so... I, I've struggled, though, because, like, how can you be a Ghostbuster if you don't have the swag, if you don't have the gear? And then they created a toy version of the Proton Pack. Anybody ever get that toy? Just me? Super nerdy, Alistair. So I show my mom this picture in the Sears catalog. I said, I want this Proton Pack. She's like, well, Christmas was, like, three weeks ago. Your birthday's not so October. I don't know what to do for you, Boyke. That's so Afrikaans for boy. And, and, and I was like, well, I'll work for it. She's like, you can't get a job. You're eight. I was like, I'll do chores. And so I cleaned dishes and scrubbed floors and picked up leaves. And it felt like months of this growing hunger that I'm going to get the photon pack. And then I'll be able to be a true ghostbuster. And finally, the glorious day arrived. And I had enough money. And my mom drove me in her Volvo down to Sears. And we got to the counter. I said, one photon pack, please. And they said, we're sold out. We're so sorry. Right? And so, you know, they said, but we can order you one and it'll be here in like two months. And my mom's like, that's great. And like, to me, that was like, that might as well get here when I'm 50 because I don't know when that is. And so the hunger starts growing again and growing and growing. And will it be satisfied? Will I get to be a Ghostbuster? And then the glorious day arrived and I got the photon pack, put it on, and I was a Ghostbuster. Still am. <laughs> When it comes to our hunger for righteousness, what we need to think about is when will it be satisfied? When will it be satisfied? Is this a promise God is holding out to us that we get there and then it's like, no, you got to wait a bit longer? Is this the sort of promise where it's just like way off in the future, well after we die when, when we're resurrected and he establishes the kingdom? Or is this more like a promise that's around the corner, it's around the bend? Or is it a promise that we can experience now? This beatitude so perfectly captures what we call the already, not yet. If you want to understand the kingdom of God, you need to understand the tension of the already, not yet. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, 
So clearly Jesus believes you can actually become the people described in this sermon. He believes that the light of the kingdom of heaven can break into your life in such a way that day after day you will look like the people described in the Beatitudes and throughout the rest of the sermon. He shows us that this sort of transformation is possible should we follow him and be his disciples and receive his grace and live by the power of his spirit. Your life can look like this. And so you can be satisfied now, this hunger for righteousness. You can start to actually become righteous. But we should think of it this way. The table has been set. If you've been set right with God, if you've been justified, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you have a seat at this table and the appetizers have been brought out and they taste good. You start to feel some satisfaction, but you know how it is. Sometimes when you're really hungry, the appetizer just makes you more hungry. And that's the way of the kingdom. You get some satisfaction for that hunger, but the hunger grows. You want more righteousness. You don't just want some righteousness. You want total righteousness, complete righteousness. You want to see that full transformation. And that won't happen until the kingdom is established entirely on earth as it is in heaven. So we can experience satisfaction now. We can grow in righteousness now, but we won't have that complete total righteousness, that greater righteousness until Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. That's when we will have the fullness of this promise. But just because it's in the future doesn't mean we can't have it now. And so this promise is about the already not yet. As you have that blessed hunger, God will satisfy some of it. And the hunger will grow and he'll satisfy it. And the hunger will grow. But finally, we need to ask, how do we become the blessed hungry? How do we become the blessed hungry? Do you have any deep, dissatisfaction in your life. I want you to explore that. that. That sort of dissatisfaction where it keeps you up at night. You're thinking about it. It's got you. It's caught you. It, it stirs you. You could be sitting across from lunch with someone and you're not hearing what they're saying because you're thinking about this thing. Do, do any of you have that? That deep dissatisfaction of your inner being. You see, we were made to eat and drink rhythmically, daily. You get in this ritual, this pattern of, of hunger, meal, hunger, meal. And, and our desires work that way too. You know, you, you might put all your energy and desire towards something, to a goal, a dream, a hope. And let's say you attain it. Let's say you get where you were hoping to go or you receive what you were hoping to receive. But what happens? Does the desire disappear? No, the energy is just freed up and now redirected to something else. And so just as we live in this pattern of hunger, meal, hunger, meal, we live in this cycle of dissatisfaction, satisfaction, dissatisfaction, satisfaction. Can you see that in your life? But can you acknowledge that even in your most satisfied moments, when you're connected with yourself, your true innermost being, there is some level of dissatisfaction. What does St. Augustine describes as you're restless. You're restless until you rest in the Lord. You see, we long to be satisfied. We do. That's what we're chasing after in our hungers. And if we ignore this deeper hunger and thirst, or pretend it's not there, here's what happens. Over time, you become cynical, or you become disenfranchised, or aloof, or even numb. But if we connect with this dis 
dissatisfaction that's fundamental to the human experience and see that it's actually a holy drive. It's a holy desire. It's a clue that's meant to lead you away from all the things you think might satisfy, uh, satisfy you to the one person who can satisfy you. Then the promise of this beatitude looks like a gift. You will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. The promise isn't that you'll get every desire you've ever wanted. That is not the promise. When you hunger for the right thing, righteousness and the kingdom of heaven, you will be satisfied. That deep dissatisfaction in your soul will be fed because God holds a feast before your soul and says, come and eat all who are willing, all who want this free bread without price. You will be satisfied. And in a strange way, it's the promise that elicits the hunger. You see, we're hungry, and it's been directing us in all sorts of ways. We may be turning to food or entertainment or sex or parties or career, whatever. We've been driven by our appetites because we're trying to fill something. And what this beatitude shows us is that when you see the promise, that hunger gets redirected appropriately. And then you hunger for righteousness. You hunger for the kingdom. And so you have to look to the promise and it creates the hunger. Should you actually see the promise? But I think the question for a culture like ours that's full and affluent is how do we stay in touch with that blessed hunger? Because we have a difficult time staying in touch with our physical hunger. How do we stay in touch with this true spiritual hunger? I like the way Eugene Peterson gets after this. He says, do the things that require nourishment. Do the things that require nourishment. If you want to exacerbate your physical hunger, you need to burn calories. Go for a run or a hike. Try to walk as fast as Christine Fletcher or play a sport or some physical activity, you know, like CrossFit. Do CrossFit and then tell everyone you do it. Whatever it is to exacerbate that hunger, if you do the activity, your hunger will follow. It's the same thing with the Sermon on the Mount. If you're not hungering after the righteousness of God, if it's weak at best, exacerbate the hunger. Do the things that require nourishment. And that's how the Sermon on the Mount is designed. If you don't just study this sermon, but you seek to live by it, you, you seek to embody it, you seek to actually do what it says, the hunger will follow. You'll begin to crave this life it describes, the love it envisions, the goodness it promises, I mean, when you really meditate on it and you try to live it out, what Jesus is offering us is a life that is externally congruent with our innermost being, that we can be transformed from within ourselves and actually start to live out what he's saying. He's holding before us a love that can endure persecution and hardship and rejection and oppression, a love deep enough and strong enough even to love your enemies. He's describing a relationship with God that is so trust-based that your daily anxieties dissipate. Because that God is so satisfying. And your relationship with him is so satisfying that you don't need to perform. You don't need to pretend like you're better than you are or more religious than you are or have a facade because you're satisfied with the God who is satisfied with you. But as you pursue the vision that Jesus holds before us, the good life he shows us, the path of being his disciple, you'll become hungry. Because very quickly you'll see you don't have enough calories to end the race. You don't have enough to actually attain the vision that he's described. 
You can expend everything you've got. You can put all that you have into this pursuit and never attain what Christ envisions for us. And that's by design. Because when we see our, our own ineptitude, when we see our own inability to attain what Jesus holds before us, when we look in ourselves and we're hungry for what he has and we're trying to get there, but we just get more hungry, that's when we look back at this beatitude and we look back at its promise and we see the goodness of the promise. You will be satisfied. You're hungering after something you can't attain. Good. You will be satisfied. God wants to feed that hunger. He wants to help you grow in righteousness day after day by his grace and by his spirit. That hunger is a good thing. See, the good news is this. We really need to get this clear in our heads. It's not our righteousness that's blessed. Say that with me. It's not our righteousness that's blessed. It's our hunger for righteousness that is blessed. And that distinction is so important. It's not how good we are that's blessed. It's your hunger for goodness that is blessed. Sometimes I sit down with some of you and you're so racked with shame and guilt because you're looking at your spiritual life and you think, I would have been farther by now. I should be better by now. I should be more righteousness. I'm falling so short. And what I want you to hear is this. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. That hunger is good. That hunger is good. Guilt and shame, I hate to break it to you, even self-loathing, it's never really transformed anyone. I've never seen someone become a righteous person by hating themselves enough, by feeling guilty enough, by feeling shameful enough. But when you fall short of the the vision of righteousness held out before us in the Sermon on the Mount, when you fall short of the kingdom and you feel a little guilty, that's okay. It's a natural emotion. But blessed are you because you're hungry for that total righteousness. You're hungry to become more like Jesus even in your failures. Blessed are you. The Beatitude doesn't say, blessed are those who are satisfied by their own righteousness. It doesn't say blessed are those who are perfectly holy. It doesn't say blessed are those who are perfect. It doesn't say if only once you're good enough can you be accepted by God. That's not how the kingdom works. The kingdom is always a gift held out to us by grace that we receive by faith. And so the beatitude is commending your hunger. The beatitude is calling blessed your hunger to become someone who looks like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You might not be a perfect citizen. You might lapse on your taxes, so to speak, but it's okay. If you're hungry for the kingdom, God will feed that hunger and there's a promise. You will be satisfied. Lastly, we really need to acknowledge that this hunger isn't always comfortable. Just like earthly hunger can be painful if you're really hungry enough. This blessed hunger is a hunger that includes heartache, a hunger that includes thirsting, a pain, a discomfort at times. We can go back to Psalm 42. I mean, this this psalmist whose soul is panting for God. Wow, this is beautiful to have that sort of desire. And the same psalm says, why are you downcast, my soul? Why are you feeding on tears? This soul is a wreck because it has a hunger for righteousness. It has a hunger to see God work in the world. And people are saying, 
where is your God? Look at this world, where is your God? The same soul that feels that anguish, feels that tension of I'm not who I want to be. So this hunger isn't always easy. It's not always pain-free. It's not always comfortable, but it's blessed because you're on the path to true flourishing. You're on the path to the kingdom. You're with the God who will satisfy you and begin to satisfy you now and begin to feed you and help you grow in righteousness day after day. And when Christ returns, when he establishes his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, when that good and glorious day finally comes, then you'll have the full meal. Then you'll be fattened. Then you will be satisfied and that hunger will dissipate and give way to a joy that will never cease for endless days. And for now, if you're hungry for that, blessed are you. Congratulations are in order.